Session 4, Primeval History and Patriarchs, Matriarchs Introduction Following the introduction to the Pentateuch in the previous session, this session takes a closer look at the primeval history and the patriarchal and matriarchal history contained in Genesis. Primeval History and Patriarchs, Matriarchs Israel's Primeval History The Account of Creation Genesis 1 Notice the pattern that appears in Genesis 1. As God calls things into existence, the phrase that appears in the text is, Let there be. Note the phrase is passive and impersonal, third-person speech. The phrase, or some related form of the phrase, appears in the first chapter at verses 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, and 24. This repeated phrase gives the impression of a powerful God who simply calls the universe and everything in it into existence in an impersonal and passive manner. Notice how the pattern is suddenly and dramatically broken at verse 26. By now, the reader is used to seeing the phrase, let there be, and is suddenly awakened by the new phrase in verse 26, let us make. This new phrase is no longer passive and impersonal, third-person speech but rather it is active and personal, second-person speech. Through the break in the pattern, verse 26 is set apart from the previous verses, 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, and 24. The item created in verse 26 is highlighted. This item is not just called into existence. This item is personally made, fashioned, built, formed in a personal way, as if by the hand of God himself. This unique and important item is humanity. Another pattern in Genesis 1 conveys a similar message. Notice the phrase, after their kind. This phrase appears in verses 11, 12, 21, 24, and 25. After their kind communicates that the items of creation, such as trees, plants, animals, are all called into being in accordance with their own kind. As the reader recognizes this pattern, he or she expects the same to be true for humans. However, once again, there is a surprising break in the pattern when the reader sees the new phrase in our image, after our likeness. This new phrase appears in verse 26. The dramatic change in wording, once again, highlights this particular item of creation as different, honored, and most important. This item is not simply after its own kind. But rather, this creature is created in the image and likeness of God. Once again, the reader discovers this unique creature is humanity. The impact of these two literary patterns is a powerful message that humanity is the most important part of God's creation. Parallelism Parallelism is a method of poetry found throughout the Old Testament in which a theme or words are repeated. The parallelism in Genesis 1.27 makes it clear the creature made in God's image includes both male and female. Both men and women are fashioned personally by God and made in the image and likeness of God. And God created the human in his image. In the image of God, he created it. Male and female, he created them. Paraphrased. In each line, the subject of the sentence is expressed as follows. God created, he created, and he created. Each subject is in parallel and refers to the same thing, i.e. God. In each line, the object of the sentence is expressed as follows, the human, it, and them. 
Each object is in parallel and refers to the same thing, i.e. the human. Note, however, the parallelism expresses an important feature of the human. That is, the human God created is actually plural, them. Thus, there is more than one human God created. In each line, a modifying phrase is expressed as follows. In his image, in the image of God, and male and female. Each modifying phrase is in parallel and refers to the same thing, i.e. the image of God. Note, however, the parallelism expresses an important feature of the image of God. That is, the image of God includes both male and female. Thus, despite the bias of a patriarchal society, a society in which men rule and women are made subject, God's word communicates that both men and women were created in the image of God. Genesis 2 Chapter 2 of Genesis creates an interesting contrast with chapter 1. Remember that in chapter 1, everything functioned very smoothly according to the will and power of God. Notice in chapter 1 the repetition of the phrase, and it was good. Verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, and 31. In fact, in verse 31, things are very good. This is contrasted in Genesis 2. Now there is a lack or need within the creation. Chapter 2, 5 states there is no shrub, no plant, no rain, and no human. In verse 18, God comes right out and says that it is not good, in contrast to how good everything was in chapter 1, in response to the lack of a partner for the human. Of course, God meets all of these needs and fills all of the lack. In verses 8 and 9, God plants a garden, including trees, for food. By verse 10, there is a river flowing to water the garden. In verses 7 and 15, we see God has made a human to cultivate the garden. In verses 21 to 25, God fashions a partner for the human. Notice the theme of interdependence in chapter 2. God creates everything in such a way that each item depends on the other. The garden needs water to grow. The human needs the garden for food. The garden needs the human to cultivate it. The human needs a partner to avoid loneliness, etc. Also, notice the theme of God's provision. God fills in all of the lack and provides for all of the need. God is the great provider of the universe. The message in chapter 1 depicts God as all-powerful creator of the universe. Chapter 1 also brings the message that humans are the most valuable and important aspect of God's creation. Chapter 2 communicates the message that God is our great provider. The world was created to function with a peaceful harmony in which we all depend on each other under God. Flood and Covenant In Genesis 3, sin is introduced into the world. By 6, 5 and 6, and 11 and 12, the picture of sin has increased to the point that it is unacceptable. In response to sin, God determines to destroy the earth by flood. Instead of destroying everyone, however, God saves a remnant through Noah and his family. Notice God's choice of Noah appears to be based on the description of Noah as righteous and blameless. 6. 9. After the flood, God starts over with Noah and his family. God's new beginning with Noah is grounded in the first covenant. This covenant is eternal and universal. God promises never to destroy the earth by flood again. 8, 21 and 22. 9, 9 through 17. The following message is clear. 
God despises evil and sin. God favors righteousness and blamelessness. God determines to begin anew with an eternal promise not to give up on humanity again. God does not simply leave this new start with the descendants of Noah to develop on its own power. God eventually enacts a second covenant and sets out on a plan to reach the whole world with his blessing. God calls Abraham into the second covenant. In this second covenant, God promises to bless all the families of the earth through one family, Abraham and Sarah's, 12, 3, 17, 16 through 19. At this point, the Bible introduces the theme of God's promise of land to Abraham and Sarah's descendants. Genesis 12, 1 and 2, 7. The promise of land and a multitude of descendants becomes an important part of God's fulfillment of the covenant. The rest of the Pentateuch pursues this promise of land and its fulfillment. This pursuit begins in the narratives of the patriarchs and matriarchs. Patriarchal and Matriarchal History Abraham is told to go to the land which I will show you. Genesis 12, 1. This creates the anticipation of discovering where the land is. As you read through the stories in Genesis 12 through 50, notice how much the patriarchs move around and how difficult it appears to get them to settle in the place God chooses. When Abram reaches Shechem, God appears and says, To your descendants I will give this land. Genesis 12, 4 through 7. It would seem God's appearance and words should be enough to confirm that this is the place. However, Abram moves farther south. At Bethel, Abram builds an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord, but God does not respond. Genesis 12, 8. Perhaps that is an indication that Abram should go back up to Shechem, where God did appear to him. Instead, however, Abram moves farther south, into the Negev. At this point, a famine hits. Genesis 12, 9 and 10. It seems pretty clear Abram is not where he is supposed to be. However, rather than moving back up north, near Shechem, Abram runs to Egypt. Throughout the rest of Genesis, there seems to be a pattern in the movements of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. God repeatedly appears to them and repeats the promise of land and descendants. These appearances from God usually occur when the patriarchs are near the areas of Shechem or Bethel or even Beersheba. God seems to tolerate their movements and repeats the promise in areas south of Shechem. However, when they run off to Egypt or over to the Philistine country or far north to Haran, events head south. They often get into trouble with the inhabitants of those places and end up being pressed back toward the area of promise. On three occasions, a famine hits. In each instance, the famine hits when a patriarch is out of place. The first was when Abraham is in the Negev. The second, when Isaac is in the Negev. And the third, when Joseph is sold and ends up all the way in Egypt. It almost appears as though God uses those famines as attention-getters to let the patriarchs know they are out of place. In the midst of all the moving around, there are some very significant texts in which God repeats the promise of land and descendants. Original call and promise, 12, 1 through 7. Promise repeated to Abraham, 13, 14 through 17. Promise repeated to Abraham, 22, 17 and 18. Promise repeated to Isaac, 26, 1 through 6. Promise repeated to Isaac, 26, 23 through 25. 
Promise repeated to Jacob, 28, 10 through 17. Promise repeated to Jacob, 35, 9 through 15. By the end of Genesis, ironically, the descendants of Jacob all move to Egypt. When Exodus begins, the children of the promise are all enslaved in Egypt. In all of this, a few messages emerge. God demonstrates steadfast love and commitment despite the wonderings and questionings of his people. God calls for his people to trust his promises and remain faithfully obedient. Despite negative odds, God will accomplish his purposes. The patriarchal and matriarchal history begins with the great promise from God and ends with his people enslaved in Egypt. The story does not end there, however. God's steadfast love and his power are demonstrated as he delivers his people and takes them through the wilderness to the land of promise. Application 1. Look at the learner objectives for this session. Can you Describe the significance of the literary patterns and thematic emphases that appear in Genesis 1 and 2. Identify the uniqueness of each creation account, Genesis 1 and 2. Understand how the first two covenants, with Noah and Abraham in the Pentateuch, reflect God's desire to reach and bless all humanity. Trace the theme of the promise of land and descendants through the patriarchal and matriarchal narrative. 2. Read Genesis 1 and 2, 4, and do the following. List the items created on each day. Identify any pattern you see with regard to the order of creation in this chapter. List any phrases repeated within the chapter, and make note of any time a repeated phrase appears to be significantly changed in its wording. Read Genesis 2, 4-25, and list each item in the order in which it is created.